Well, if you want to keep your Bibles open, we're going to refer back to that story, the story of the life of David. But as we start, I want to say that as people, no matter where you've come from, whether you're here regularly, whether you're visiting for the first time, as people, we need to grow, don't we? We need to change, we need to develop, we need to continue to, to improve and change and, and grow. It's my experience of, of moving home. Liv and I have, have recently moved from Bristol. Many of you will know. Um, back up here for me. I grew up around here. We've moved back into the same house I grew up. And, and things have changed. Not everything. But certainly the kids living either side of our, uh, our house have changed. They've grown up. The toddlers are now you know, going to like comp. Well, not quite, but... And the guys that were in comp the other side are now grown up and working and getting jobs and playing loud music a lot. I think it'd be fair to say that if we're not growing, we're dying. It'd certainly be true of plants, wouldn't it? If a plant is not growing, it's dying. And I think it would be also fair to say that of people. We need to grow. I think in the workplace... Firms recognise this. Now more than ever, no matter what job, there's continual push for training, for developing, for increasing your skills and your usefulness, improving, changing, growing. And that's God's plan for his people. A church is a group of people who belong to God, who individually have been saved to be part of of a church, a gathering of people. Maybe if you've never been to church before, this church, maybe that's new to you. But God's plan of salvation is to to change us. And he does that in a moment. He changes our status. We weren't his and now we are his. But as well as changing our status, he also changes our substance. He begins to change us over a period of time to become more and more like the people that he's called us to be. God is changing each one of us, changing us to be more and more like Jesus, the perfect human who perfectly lived out what it means to be a human, honouring God with his life, with his words, with his deeds, with his thoughts in a way that we have failed spectacularly to do. And so we are looking at the life of David as a church. We were doing it A few months ago, we've paused over the summer, and now we're returning to the life of of one man the Bible tells us about, a man who God calls, in an instant changes his status from shepherd boy, insignificant, youngest of a few brothers, forgotten about really by his own father, to becoming a king, a king in waiting. God takes a young man, And in an instant changes his status, but over time changes his makeup, changes his character, changes his substance. And we're examining his life so that we might examine our own, so that we might learn what it means to be, continue to be changed, to become more like Jesus. So this shepherd boy, who becomes a warrior, fights the great giant Goliath. So we see his heart 
change and develop. His trust change and develop. We see his attitudes, his words, his actions change and, and grow. And we're going to look at two things today. Firstly, the danger of thinking that we've arrived. And secondly, our need for wisdom. Because I'm going to assume that you want to grow. That you want to change. That deep down that you recognize that that you're not yet finished. And if you don't think that, then ask the person who's closest to you. And if they're honest, they'll tell you there's work still to be done. Certainly, Lib will tell you that is true of me. So firstly, the danger of thinking that we've arrived. You may remember back many months ago, and of course you may not, when Graham preached to us on 1 Samuel 24. We left David at a moment of a real, I think, triumph. More than that, of peace. A moment of hopeful expectation. You see, David had been plucked from obscurity, given this calling that he would become the king. And yet there was another king on the throne, Saul. And David had served him faithfully. We looked at how David did fight the giant Goliath. When grown men cowered in fear, when an army was on its knees... A young boy stands up and says, I will fight for God's glory. I will trust that it is better even to stand and die than it is for God's name to be dishonored. And we saw him strike the giant down. And God glorified. And Saul loves what David has done. And he brings him into his service. We're told that David is a musician. And he's got a gift to be able to to play music in a way which soothes the soul of Saul. And yet as David's fame grows, Saul turns against David. And David then goes on the run as Saul tries to, to kill him. To wipe out the threat to his own kingdom, his own throne. David is being hunted unfairly, unjustly. The floor is in Saul, the king who has lost the favour of God. He's going to lose his kingdom because he's turned away from God. And his response is to to amass his troops and to seek to, to smoke David out, to kill off the threat. And we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 24, this account where the army arrives on the doorstep of the cave where David is hiding with his men. And Saul goes into this cave not knowing David is in there to to relieve himself and David has the opportunity to strike down the greatest threat in his life the one who threatens his happiness and his comfort and his joy and his life and yet he trusts he trusts in God's ways and God's promises God has said you will be king David And he trusts that it is not right for him to try and take that for himself. And so instead he he just cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. And even that he feels guilty about. And Graham was so helpfully, you can listen again online, talking to us about David's sin and yet triumph in that moment as he trusts. But listen to that account, how that account ends. When David uh, finished saying this, talking to Saul about how he could have killed him but didn't. 
Saul said, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just told me now about the good you did to me. The Lord gave me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. And Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. There's, there's peace. After David has been on the run, after Saul has committed her horrific acts, there is an acknowledgement from Saul that David will be king. And Saul weeps and then goes home. And there's peace. And David is rewarded for, for taking the moral high road. Saul's gone. David is in his stronghold with his men. He's a man who trusts in God's timing, who is obedient to God's commands, who is honourable in the face of dishonesty. And that's where we start 1 Samuel 25. David on a high peace reigns. And yet we enter the next part of the story. We're told that Samuel, the spiritual leader of, of, of Israel, dies. And maybe it's that that causes David to move from the stronghold into the desert, into the wilderness of Paran. And that's where these events take place. David is, is doing well. He's trusted God. He's seen the fruit of trusting God. And then he encounters Nabal. Let me give us three quick headings to, just to help us to understand what takes place. There's a reasonable request. So David and his men were told that there's 600 of them, 600 men uh, at least, are camped out. They made camp. And there's a local man, a local wealthy man. Did you see the description, verse 2? A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. We don't even know his name yet. And we're told that he's wealthy, and we're told a little bit about his wealth. It's a man who is defined by his possessions, Nabal. And Nabal's sheep shearers, his shepherds, have, have got their flocks, and they're around David's men. And maybe we could have expected there to be a bit of interaction. What we find is this. It's a little bit like Nabal has sat his men down next to the hardest kid at school. I don't know if you can remember back to when you were a kid. And I, I guess in some of us could probably still tell you the name of the hardest kid in school. Or maybe it's just a boy thing. I don't know. Michael Richardson. It's the hardest kid in my school. Okay? If you sat next to Michael Richardson, you knew that you were going to be okay. Nobody was going to come and pick on you. Maybe it's a, a big brother thing. If you had a big brother... Nobody was going to come and pick on you because, well, they knew who your big brother was. That's, that's what's going on here. David and his men provide, were described as a wall around Nabal's sheep and shepherds. They are protected because of their geographical proximity to David and his men. And so when David hears that Nabal is shearing his sheep, 
here's what, what goes on. When somebody's shearing their sheep, it's, it's a sign that, that, of prosperity. It's a time of feasting. So they would shear the sheep, but they would also party hard. There would be a big feast. People would be invited. There would be a reward for those who served the master. And so David, is, he says, hey, we provided you a service. There's a reason that you can party as hard as you can now. Your feast can be so big because, because me and my men, we protected you. We protected your belongings. And so David and his men in the wilderness, David sends a request. Hey, if you've got anything spare, can you send it our way? It is a reasonable request. But it is a rude reply. We've already seen that Nabal is a man who's defined by his possessions. Actually, we find out a little bit more about him. Not just how wealthy he was. We're told he was surly and mean in his dealings. Actually, the author's biographical note about Nabal. Actually, we find later that his own men find him to be a man of disrepute, a man of dishonour. And he replies to David in verse 10. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. He knows who David is. He's aware of who this guy is, of, of the backstory, of what the crowds have said about him, about how David had served the king, probably knew the story of David and Goliath. He says, why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? He says, I have benefited from you being around and I have not had to pay a thing and I kind of like it that way. He basically tells him to get lost. The man who's lacking in hospitality. He's a man whose response exposes his heart of greed. Why pay for services already rendered? There was no formal agreement. I've benefited David and now you can go on your merry way. Throws in a couple of cheap digs. But then we see David's response. Remember we're looking mainly at David here, not Nabal. So if Nabal's was a rude reply, from David we get a disproportional response. So look down at verse 13. David said to his men, when his men returned and report what Nabal had said, David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. And so they did, and David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. 401 swords heading over the hill, down the ravine, to sort Nabal out. David is fuming. He is so angry that he's been disrespected in this way. He goes further. Look at verse 22. It's just over the page. May God deal with David, David speaking himself, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. David is hell-bent on revenge. He has been slighted, and now his heart burns with anger. Let's stop there and remember our way back just to the previous chapter. To David, the man of trust, who trusts God's ways and God's promises. 
actually we find this chapter, this story that we're looking at, this account sandwiched between two almost identical accounts where David has an opportunity to kill Saul, to take hold of what God has promised him, and yet both times he chooses to to trust. We see a proportional response. And in the middle we see this. We see this anger burning. A man who won't take Saul's life, but now he's going to take the life of every male in the house of Nabal because Nabal has not shown him hospitality. There's a saying in football that you're most vulnerable when you've just scored. That's my only sport in reference. But this idea that after a success, at that moment you're then vulnerable to a defeat. And I think that's kind of the idea here, that David's on such a high that the author of this book is telling us this story and going, look, look how great David's faith is. Maybe even David himself was thinking things are going well. It's tough, it's hard, but I'm going God's way. And he's ripe for a fall. Maybe that humble response to the opportunity to take Saul's life has grown into a a proud heart that he hadn't taken Saul's life. And maybe we're tempted here to to load up the excuses for David. Look Look at Nabal's response. If Nabal knows who David's father is, if if Nabal knows David's backstory, if if Nabal knows all this about David, surely he should be kinder, more generous. David's got a right to be angry. Or we could say, look, we, we, got, we just got to be kind to David here, because, look, at least he's got the big one right. Well, yeah, he didn't kill Saul. Better to kill Nabal than Saul. Isn't David just striking a blow here for justice? I suspect the the leaning in my own heart to want to start to make excuses for David, and maybe it's theirs and yours too, tells us more about us than it does about David. We've got to ask the question, why is David's response so harsh, so disproportionate? Is it because of Nabal? Are we going to say this is Nabal's fault? I think it's because it's David. The answer here is not Nabal. It's David. It goes like this. Imagine I had a glass of water in my hand. Okay? I should have brought up a prop. I didn't. Glass of water in my hand. And somebody comes up here and knocks my arm. Water goes all over this electrical equipment. Why has the water gone over the electrical equipment? You might say, because somebody's knocked me. That's kind of true, but the real reason is because there's water in the glass. If there's no water in the glass, it doesn't matter what anybody does to me, that's not getting wet. This circumstance reveals the reality of David's heart. And it's easy for us to, to want to excuse David because we want to excuse ourselves. The reality that this anger comes out because that is who David is. 
This is a reality check. Jesus tells us, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs tells us that we need to guard our hearts because it is the wellspring of life, i.e. what's inside of us will come out. And Nabal is just the just the, the wind that's blowing that causes what's already inside of David to topple over the edge. The conflict here with Nabal exposes the reality of David's heart. There is an anger, an impatience, a trust in himself, not in God, that is still there in David. It's a reality check after the high of chapter 24 to be able to say, hang on, David is not done yet. And we've got to ask the question of ourselves, do we... Are we tempted to think that we're done? There actually were quite good people. And when we see signs of sin, be that anger or, or, or be that lust or be that pride, are we tempted to blame it on the circumstances? To say that's, that's not the, that only happened because. The only reason I lashed out is because that person said that thing because she said that, or because he did this. Samuel 25 is a warning to us that we need to continue to be humble. The humility that David shows in the previous chapter, when he says, I need to trust God's way, God's timing, God's promises. Here he's not thinking about God at all. It's, let me get my revenge. Let me sort this out. Let me do it. I think God is trying to warn us that we dare not assume that success in one area of our life means that we're, we're sorted. Maybe you've had it where you're battling a particular sin and you base your whole spiritual dynamic on how you're doing fighting in that one particular area. Maybe it's one particular person that you've got such an issue with and you can fight hard and pray hard and, and deal well with them. But actually you're lashing out elsewhere. But we're only seeing it for this one person or this one issue. We must, David must, we must continue to, to stay humble. We have not arrived and I say that not knowing many of you particularly well yet. It's just the reality of the human condition. We are still works in progress. And the need for a humble reliance on God, that's not a one-off payment. That is a daily bill that we need to pay to, to humble ourselves, to recognize that we need God's help. To not say, well, I've succeeded here, so therefore I'm okay. So how does David grow from here? Then? So the second thing, the need for wisdom. What prevents this story ending up like a Quentin Tarantino movie, a bloodbath of epic proportions? Well, it's wisdom. And it's wisdom in the form of the beautiful Abigail. 
One of the commentators describes Abigail like this. She is a woman of good sense and good looks. She's beautiful and wise. And when she gets ear of what's taking place, of Nabal's response, of, of, as the servants bring that news to her, she, she acts. She sees it's going badly. And she takes it upon herself to sort out the mess. She listens to the reports. Let's listen again to, to what the servants tell her. Verse 14, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not ill-treat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. And she says, they're right. There's no use me going to talk to Nabal. I need to act. And so she does. She gets a whole load of provisions. She loads them up. And she gets on the way to intercept David before he can arrive. Before he can arrive at Nabal's house. And then she comes and she brings wisdom to David. She humbles herself Verse 23, she kneels before David. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. And then she speaks. She speaks words of wisdom to David. Let me pull out some of the markers. What does wisdom look like? Wisdom stops you trying to be God or to do his job. Look at verse 26. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. She is the one who has kept David by going, by intercepting, but she recognises that it's God's plan, God's way, is not for David to, to right this wrong and to overreact. Wisdom stops us trying to be God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But notice too, wisdom reminds of God's promises. Look at verse 29. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away from the pocket of a sling. She says, David, you know the story. You know what God has called you to. You know that he will keep his promises. Verse 30, wisdom reminds of God's goodness. Not just his promises, but his goodness. Verse 30, when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel. Every good thing. Wisdom steers us away from a guilty path. Verse 31, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or, ha or of ha having avenged himself. Wisdom stops us trying to be God or trying to do God's job. It reminds us of God's promises. It reminds us of God's goodness. It reminds us, it steers us away from taking a guilty path. In this story, wisdom is, is beautiful. 
and wise in the form of Abigail. But actually wisdom, not in a physical sense, is always beautiful because it leads to a right way. Wisdom is practical, humble, God-honoring, others-serving. If we are to grow, not least in the face of conflict as David was experiencing, we need wisdom. When the sin inside the glasses of our hearts is exposed, we need wisdom to point us in the right direction. Not to take the easy option of blaming circumstances, of excusing ourselves. And I think we're all prone to do just that. Ultimately, we need better wisdom even than Abigail. We need the wisdom of God. I think that's what Abigail points us to here. This is God speaking to David, using Abigail. But it's God's wisdom. And that leaves us with the question, well, what is the wisdom of God? Because, well, we do have an Abigail here. But it's not about her. Oh, no, she's gone. Sorry, Abby. We need more than Abigail. We need God's wisdom. Listen to these, this description of Jesus from 1 Corinthians. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And again, it says a few verses later, 1 Corinthians 1, it is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. God's wisdom is Christ Jesus. He, just like Abigail, comes and takes upon himself the sin. Did you notice that when she first arrived? When she first speaks to David? Verse 24, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the, the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. I've missed the verse, Sorry. Oh, I can't find it. She comes and she says, let the guilt be on me. I'll find a verse in a minute. Let the guilt be on me. And it's there that we see that this is about more, because she's not guilty. She's not guilty in any way. She didn't know. She weren't there when the messengers came in from David. She didn't know about Nabal's response. She is utterly guiltless. And yet this wisdom takes upon herself, himself, the guilt of others. Jesus Christ is God's wisdom to us. The one who takes upon us, upon himself, our sin. The one who takes away our guilt. The one who brings the message of God's promises and God's goodness the one who stops us, turns us away from the way of guilt and bloodshed. It is Jesus. And he is both the messenger as Abigail was, who comes from God, but he is also the message. 
He's also the one who does it. We need Jesus. We need to hear the message of Jesus Christ crucified. In the midst of our conflict, when we're tempted to blame circumstance or others, in the light of our sin, we need to hear about Jesus. We need somebody to speak to us of him who died for our guilt, for our sin. For him who came to turn us from this path of trying to be God, of taking God's job upon ourselves. And we need to hear, he has done it all. So that you might live. So that you might live a life that is pleasing to God. That you might experience a life of peace and joy. So as we close, what does that mean? What does that mean for us as a a church? Well, this group of people that we are need to be a people who will receive the wisdom of Christ from one another. Because the reality is often when we're tempted, as David was in the face of conflict, to, to go our own way, it is very easy to shut our ears to anybody who would turn us aside from that. When the blood begins to boil because of the injustice, we don't want people saying, don't do that. Of the 600 men with David, surely one of them could have said, David, this is, this is not the way. This is not the way. David, remember, remember Saul. Just, David, look back in the last chapter and remember how you trusted God's promise that God would do what he says he would do, that God is good. We're so prone to closing our ears, but we need to be a community of people who are willing and who allow others to speak of Jesus and all that he has done for us all the time, but especially in the midst of conflict. I wonder how many of our friendships with church people are not marked by ever speaking of Jesus. I wonder how many times we've swallowed that impulse to say, I'm not sure as a Christian that is the way to go. How many times we've sat awkwardly by when somebody, one of our brothers and sisters in Jesus, is is walking a path away from him, not trusting. Is taking the easy pleasures of today rather than trusting in God's promise of eternal joy for tomorrow. How many times have we sat by and said, it would be awkward for me to speak of Christ and and his death and his resurrection and the hope of of eternity to, to him or to her. I think so many times we just think, well, that's somebody else's job. That's the preacher's job. If if our church is going to grow, we've got to be willing to receive wisdom, not just when somebody stands up here behind this pulpit, but, but from each other in everyday life. We've got to be willing to be Abigail but also willing to receive Abigail.
And don't just wait till conflict comes. Let's strive now to build the sort of relationships where, where we speak of Jesus to one another. The wisdom of going his way, of trusting in God's promises as we see them fulfilled in Jesus. Just like Abigail be saying to each other, God has promised. God is good. Turn. Turn from a guilty path and trust in God and in his time. We've got to be willing. We've got to encourage people to speak that truth to us if we want to grow. We've got to get over this awkwardness about speaking about Jesus. We've got to be willing to to speak into each other's lives. I wonder, who, who have we given permission to speak to us about Jesus? Are we willing for our husband or wife? Are you willing for your parents to speak to you about Jesus? Are you willing for your friends to to bridge over that awkward friendship, we'll talk about anything else, gap? Let's pray that we'll be willing to receive wisdom. The wisdom of the cross. The wisdom of reality of showing that, yes, there's still work to be done in us. That there is still change that needs to happen, growth that needs to take place. And that's awkward, because who wants to admit that they're wrong? Who wants to admit that they're less than that they show the public face that they show to everybody else? But it's real. And when we admit to it, and when we face up to it, and we allow wisdom to be spoken into our lives, then then we can grow. As David did. So let's build that habit. Start, even this week. Maybe it'll be in home group. Maybe you've never spoken up about the genuine nature of, of Jesus. The reality of him in your life, in your home group. Or maybe this week when that urge comes up, don't squash it. God encourages us to speak to one another. The New Testament is full of this, this this gathering of people who are speaking and singing to one another and saying, look at Jesus, listen to Jesus, remember what Jesus has done. That's the sort of church that we want to be. And it will be hard and it will be messy because it's full of people like us. But are we a growing people? Let's pray. Father, we want to grow. And we're aware that in so so much of our lives, it doesn't feel as though we are growing. And we confess that tendency to to want to excuse our behaviour, our sin, to blame circumstance, to blame others. Father, we confess We confess that we have failed you, that we are still so broken in so many ways. Oh, that there's so much work to be done in us. But we pray, oh, trusted that you do forgive us again, that we are your children, that we are loved by you. We pray that you will grow us together 
to be a people who speak your wisdom into one another's lives. Lord, that we speak of Jesus, the one who died, the one who bore our guilt and our sin. Lord, the one who is the very message that you are a promise-keeping God, that you are a good God, that you love us, that you will keep us, that you will continue to change us and you will finish the work that you have started in us. You are the God, Lord, who will one day in Christ come again. And you'll finish that work of renewing not just us, but, but your entire world. Father, let us speak truth to one another. Father, help us do that now as we sing of the wonder of the cross. As we sing of Jesus, help us to sing that truth to one another and open our ears to, to hear one another, to encourage one another. Grow us. Grow as we pray. In Jesus' name.